Welcome back to another episode of Venture Unlocked, the podcast that takes you behind the scenes of the business of venture capital. I'm your host, Samir Kaji. And on this week's show, I'm excited to bring you our first international fund manager and Danny Cohen from Viola Ventures. Formerly known as Carmel Ventures, the firm was founded in 2000 and currently has over $4 billion in assets under management. Danny joined the firm in 2013 after 11 years at Gemini Ventures. Given how much growth we've seen in the Israeli ecosystem over the last five years, which includes a 6x growth in funding, it was really fun to chat with Danny about what he's seen locally in the market and how Viola has evolved as a firm over the years to consistently be a top venture brand for entrepreneurs in what has become an increasingly competitive market. Hope you enjoy the episode with Danny. If you're investing in private companies, then you need to know about Sidecar, the latest player in venture tech. Sidecar is on a mission to enable anybody to be a capital allocator by creating tools built specifically for today's venture investor. Their powerful software removes the headache of organizing private investments so that you can focus on making deals, not spreadsheets. Whether you're syndicating your first or 50th deal, Sidecar X is your silent operating partner, handling all back office functions in a single place. Sidecar always has your back so that you never have to worry about chasing subdocs, lost wires, or late K1s. In the spring of 2021, as private market activity continued, we launched Allocate, and Sidecar was an instrumental part of our success. Their products supported our fundraise in a way that delighted my investors and kept me apprised in real time throughout the process. Their platform allowed Allocate to close our seed round efficiently and effectively, so we could get back to our mission of increasing access to top private alternatives. Visit Sidecar.io to learn more and join the waitlist for their limited beta. Today's episode is sponsored by Brex. Brex offers smart financial solutions to help startups scale, including a high-limit corporate credit card and a no-fee business account. Brex understands what founders need and has innovated on traditional financial systems to help you manage your finances more easily, so you can focus on building, not banking. You can rely on Brex for everything you need to scale fast, with live support at the ready, a great mobile app, and zero paperwork. Open a corporate card and business account and make your first deposit in minutes at brex.com forward slash venture. Even better, you'll earn uncapped points on every purchase from day one, redeemable for your first choice of rewards, including crypto. Get started at brex.com forward slash venture. Danny, thanks so much for joining us today. Uh, Samir, it's amazing to be here. I really, uh, I'm excited about this and uh, so excited to see you again. I'm excited for a number of reasons. One, uh, you've been in the venture industry for a very long time. Number two, we've seen the growth of the Israeli ecosystem, which I'm excited to talk about. And then three, you're actually the first international GP on the show. So we got a lot of great things going. But before we get into the market itself, I like to start off with your background and how you became a full-time investor back in 2001. Sure. So uh, kind of quick, I was an engineer in the 90s, um, decided I wasn't that great at it. So I went to business school. I went to INSEAD in France, which was uh, at that time, or still is, I think one of the best schools outside the US or one of the best uh, schools globally. After that, uh, you know, 2000, I, I, I graduated in 99, um, the, you know, the tech industry was booming. I had to go to Silicon Valley. So I went to Silicon Valley and I was there kind of through the huge up and amazing down, which we might talk about it uh, again. And then uh, I decided I need to go back home, that Silicon Valley is not what I expected it to be. Um, and I think venture was the best job or business job I could get, or I, I thought would be the most exciting job to get in Israel. 
So I moved back, got this opportunity to join a, a venture fund called Gemini and uh, didn't know where it will go. And, you know, guess what? 21 years later, we're still, the, you know, still in this. So. Tell us a little bit about what led to going from, you know, the company side to the investor side. What was it about investing that got you so interested in investing in early stage companies? There was something before that, and we'll talk about Israel, and I think it relates. I actually thought back then that um, doing a real business job where you can kind of get into uh, the full-blown business world was hard out of Israel in tech. Because back then, most tech jobs in Israel were either development or product. Uh, so venture capital was a great way to do it locally, but still have a full-blown kind of a business career. You know, I want to say that I knew exactly what I was getting into. That wasn't true. I think what got me excited was working with many companies. That was fun. And also trying to understand where the future is going. I think those two were intriguing ideas that um, I thought will be fun for me. But did I know exactly what this will be like? Um I did not. And I actually think that investing in 2000 was very different than what it is today. Yeah, I, I actually started my career in 99 and, and similar to you. I mean, and of course, the markets have shifted so much and even more so in the, in the last 10 years, which actually brings me to more of a specific question around not only the, the tech markets, but the Israeli tech market, which, you know, I started following maybe 16 years ago. But I was also looking at the current stats, and I was shocked to see how much growth has happened. A lot of this conversation is going to be informed by what you're seeing in your local market. But what, what I saw was a, almost a 6x increase in total funding over the last six years, the exit market going from 2 to $84 billion in the course of those five years. And the first question that pops up in my mind is, What's really driving that massive growth over the last five or six years? In 2007, I was living in Silicon Valley again, and I wrote a blog post saying, you know, when will we have our billion dollar company? And oh, my God, that would be so amazing. And, you know, we had we were the number two global market after the U.S. with number of unicorns last year, more than China. That is a crazy stat. So what happened in Israel is really uh, just phenomenal. Um, I think there are a lot of drivers uh, to this. Israel was always very, very entrepreneurial. Uh, So we always had the ability to um, create companies with good ideas. I think the big thing was internet as a distribution channel and the move from sales teams that needed to be local and what was called the Israeli model was you build a company and then you hire a U.S. team for the go-to-market. That was a huge limiting factor because the reality was that if you're a start Israeli startup company in 2010, you don't get the best salespeople to work for your company. So, yeah, you interviewed, you got a sales operation. Of course, there's some you know outside example, but generally speaking, I think the go-to-market teams, local go-to-market teams, were just not good enough. And when the move was to distribution online, where basically you could create a company and it doesn't matter if it's in Silicon Valley, Indiana, or Tel Aviv, and your go-to-market is all online and you do it through local kind of uh, either, you know, complete a uh, full service or, or SDRs. When that happened, Israel's um, innovation really exploded and the limiting factor was just gone. 
And, uh, and I think that really would open up the market opportunity for the Israeli companies. I want to say that the go-to-market, the online go-to-market was also happened, you know, Israel uh, went really deep into kind of weird areas like um, real money gaming. And I think that opportunity that was left open by the U.S. companies actually enabled Israelis to be really good at online distribution. And that talent, when it moved from real money uh, gambling into other um, categories, really enabled go-to-market. Okay, So I think that completes that picture, and I think it's important. So within any ecosystem, one of the things that really drives company formation and growth is also the access to capital. And of course, there are firms like yourselves, which have been around for, I guess, 22 years now, formerly Carmel Ventures, Gemini Ventures, where you were at. Can you maybe describe what the current funding market is? Is the majority of capital coming from local funders? And are there more funds? Or is it a function of a lot of capital coming from other geographies like the U.S.? Historically, uh, there were Israeli funds and U.S. funds that played an early stage in Israel. If you look back when I started, Sequoia was operating in Israel, Benchmark was operating in Israel, Greylock and some others. After the 2008 crash, a lot of these funds left. Um, some are back. Bessemer, Lightspeed are still back. But overall, I would say, roughly speaking, seed and early stage is dominated by local firms, um, still is. Uh, there are some outside capital that comes in and does sometimes investment. You can mention General Catalyst is one, but others. Big, big, big change is the growth capital that didn't exist 15 years ago. And now is in Israel in a big way. And that is the majority of that is uh, U.S. money. And all the big growth capital funds are operating in Israel. Uh, Insight, Tiger, Blackstone, General Atlantic, all those guys are in Israel in a big way. And they've, they've, they've poured tons of dollars into the local ecosystem. Let's distill down to the early stage part of the market where I know you spend almost all your time, if not all your time. And presumably what you've seen in Israel is something similar to what we've seen here in the US, which is the early stage market is hyper competitive, a lot of funds chasing companies. And competition can be really, really fierce where as a firm, you have to have some kind of comparative advantage. And whether that advantage is brand or network, value add, speed, all of those things matter in terms of uh, winning the deals that you've identified as being good fits for the fund. Tell us a little bit about how you guys think about it, because I am assuming that this is something that has probably amplified as the market in Israel has grown. This question is, is critical. And, and to be honest, we, we think and talk about that question constantly. And I think uh, we look at exactly those parameters, right? We look at speed, we look at the ability to deploy capital, we look at value add. I think for us, uh, overall, we see the value add as the most important part, and that's where we want to focus. It goes a lot to the size of our overall platform. So we have beyond our early stage, we have a growth fund, uh, we have a credit fund. So the, the size of the platform is really what we try to, to push forward as a basis of that value add. And the value add is the idea that an Israeli company, although targeting the U.S. market and, or global markets, and although it competes maybe on, on the same, in the same market as other U.S. companies, they need uh, things that are a little bit different. The HR side, the human capital side, they need different type of people. Uh, they need best practices on how to operate in a remote uh, location, even in, in COVID times. 
Um, and they needed to open a network, which is is a little bit far away. It is not easy to find that network kind of in, in your backyard. So these are the things that we focus on a lot. And that, that I would say, is the critical uh, value add. I, I think the reality is it's it's great. It's not enough. We still need to be really good on, on timing and move fast. And we need to be uh, agile in the amount of capital we put in. And, and, and that number goes up as well. So um, the value add is our key thing, but it's not enough. Double clicking on value add for a second. Are there things that are germane to the Israeli ecosystem that you spend a lot of time thinking about in terms of driving value to your founders? So I think the one one area is, is I think, top of mind for everybody is human capital. Um, and I think that's probably not different between Israeli companies and U.S. companies. Everybody's short of great talent. Everybody wants great talent. Everybody has a hard time to identify great talent. So I think that one is probably in common, but critical. I think there, there are things, being a startup company early stage, even B2B or B2C doesn't matter, being far away from the market and being not, not um, native in the U.S., I think there are things that uh, you're far away from the market. You need to have ways to better understand exactly the, the fine tunings of the market, if you will. Okay, It's definitely true about consumer side, but also from specific buyers in certain B2B areas. So understanding overall what are the dynamics of the market is something that if you're far away in Israel, um, I think you need help with that. And that's something that we focus a lot in bringing that in um, to our entrepreneurs. So that could be through the network, through our CIO advisory board on the B2B side, through um, just access to people that understand um, the market, or even going with entrepreneurs and touring and meeting people and promoting the fact that they need to be in the market to understand it better. I, I think that is something that is different for Israeli companies. And we focus a lot on that point uh, uh, with the early stage companies we uh, we invest in. I think you're right. And in, in- for any company, particularly with engineering talent, it is difficult to continue to secure high-level talent and, of course, retain that talent. You mentioned something a bit earlier in terms of the entire Viola story, which includes multiple products. You have the FinTech Fund, the Growth Fund. You have a fund that's focused on credit, which I, I do want to spend a little bit more time understanding. But tell us a little bit how you weave all of these different groups together to provide a cohesive value-add proposition to the underlying companies? Well, I would say, you know what, the founders of Viola, I think when they started in 2001, they were looking at the difference between what's happening in Israel and what's happening in, in the U.S., and they thought the local market was just not mature enough and needed more types of capital. And when you look at the overall capital market in uh, Israel 2001, there was basically early stage, just early stage, Right. Uh, there was uh, very little um, venture debt or understanding of venture debt. There was no growth capital. There was no fund of funds. So the, I think the founders had that vision to do to really kickstart an industry, if you will. And I have a big admiration for them for doing that. And, and they did that across different sectors. Uh, right now, I think we have a different view on it. Entrepreneurs, when they when they work with with uh, venture firms, they want the firms to be there on multiple solutions for the entire journey. So it's not being there just for their seed capital, but be there for the next round and the next round after that, and maybe into the growth side, and maybe um, help them understand the different aspects of that. 
And as we have multiple products, I think it's a great feature for many of the entrepreneurs we work with. On the other hand, you want to have the flexibility of these smaller teams when they operate. That's why the way we do it is we have different funds with different teams in each sector. So I work only on the early stage part and I focus on that, where we collaborate on the platform side and trying to bring full solutions to the entrepreneur. When you think about all of these different funds and these different team members that are managing these unique separate funds, that presumably have very different skill sets. What are the things that you do to make sure that when all of these things are combined and interplay with each other, you're driving the right type of synergies both to your companies, but also within the firm? This is also, this is all changing through the years, right? So it is today a little bit different than what it was five or 10 years ago. But I will say at the basis of it, each fund has its own partners meeting and partner decisions. So investment decisions are made by each fund on its own. I think where the, 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 the combined work is, uh, first of all, giving our growth fund or credit fund access to the early stage, stage companies that are of high quality. I think that's a great opportunity, right? We understand that if we grow something that is real of significant value, we want to show it to the growth team. We, we don't show it only to them, but kind of promoting that with them, I think is definitely an opportunity and, 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 and we work on that. And then we, we have these uh, um, value add people, they are working across all the different uh, funds, right? So our partner ahead of human capital, he's not dedicated to one fund, he's dedicated to the entire platform. And as you think about some of these different products that you're offering to founders, which does seem like a very cohesive offering, what are some of the challenges of a multi-product fund or firm rather? We see this in the US, of course, with some of the bigger funds rolling out different strategies, both geographic, sector focus, stage focus. Are there some non-obvious challenges for any firm that's looking to roll out these multiple products? I think our biggest question is what is your brand and what is your perceived brand? And um, especially true, I'm a partner at an early stage venture fund. I wanna try, initially we thought we'll try to promote our venture fund as a separate unit and try to focus on that as a brand. The reality is the market doesn't get that. The market looks at the brand, the Viola brand as one big brand. and if they, if an entrepreneur, I mean entrepreneur, and he has a company that competes with one of the portfolio companies or a growth fund, sometimes that's a challenge because it's not part of the venture's portfolio. But from his perspective, it's one big happy Viola family, which is great. But they are, uh, and you need to kind of explain what's the differences between the different assets and when I'm involved and when I'm not involved. That has great benefits and also challenges. The benefits. Um, if our growth fund IPO is a great company, we get score. We get a score for that, even though it's not an early stage that was involved in that, right? So we enjoy their wins and kind of get hurt by their losses, if you will. Uh, by the way, years ago I saw Sequoia do that, and in a really good way. I saw an Israeli partner from Sequoia Israel talk about the their amazing investment in WhatsApp, and I was like, "You guys didn't invest in WhatsApp? The U.S. team did that, right?" Wait. But they, they leverage the brand, right? And, and we're doing the same thing, right? We're trying to enjoy the same thing. So that's good good and bad. But overall, I would say the kind of the full branding of the ecosystem, that's our uh, opportunity and our challenge. I was at an organization that actually did something very similar, which was invest in companies, lend to companies in different stages on both sides. And one of the things that 
we grappled with was this concept of conflict. So if you do an early stage and it goes into the growth stage later, and then you're also lending, how do you think about managing conflict across the different products? I know you have unique investment teams, but given the overall brand platform, I, I would presume that a lot of LPs ask these questions in terms of how, how do these things work when there is a potential conflict with the same portfolio company? It's a big challenge on paper. I don't think it's a real challenge. I don't see it. I don't think we 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 see it too much on a daily basis. I think we are very um, good in understanding this is a long-term game. And when there's a th- an area where the conflict is obvious, it's easy to walk away from it if it's if it's uh, um, if it has a kind of a negative connotation to it. I think the reality it's a much more of a positive synergy than anything. So. Yeah, I thought, you know, coming into the firm, I thought that was a big deal. In reality, I don't think we see a lot of it kind of on our day-to-day work. Yeah, it's very clear that you've built a holistic and very synergistic team across multiple disciplines. And now the firm has been around for 20 plus years with over $4 billion under management. And one of the hallmarks I've always found of great firms is there's a ongoing evolution that occurs and there's multiple inflection points whether it be personnel or whether it be overall approach and strategy, given market changes. You joined in 2013. It's coincided with the biggest growth of Israeli tech. And what I'm curious about is hearing whether you can point to a few inflection points that you've seen at Viola that have really helped the firm continue to evolve and grow. I think I I will highlight two. I think one is uh, really the expansion of kind of the single firm to the platform, right? That was before my time. I think that was the initial idea from the beginning, but having launching the credit fund and the growth fund and operating that and building the brand around it and thinking how the brand works all together and talking through some of the things and what what is joint and what is not, I think that point, especially the, the launch of the growth fund in 2008, I think that's definitely a pivotal point in understand, kind of building the entire platform. I think the other one is uh, the move from a founders to the non-founders as kind of the equal partners in everything in the firm. And, you know, we have three founders started it. They're still very operational, all three of them. Initially, they they ran the show. It was their show. And, uh, and somewhere, I would say, about when I joined, it started to shift into an equal partnership where it's the partner's show, no matter if you're a founder and, or not. And I think when that happened, when it was clear that I have exactly the equal economics to the founder, when we're all in it together, when we are a true partnership, I think that had just a, a, such a positive impact on everything we do. And I admire uh, Shlomo Avi, the founders of, of the team, that they were so much focused on the long-term play and getting to that equal partnership and not kind of trying to optimize their uh, their economics, if you will. And this is something so many firms have struggled with over time, where you have founders that have started a firm and then three or four or five funds later realize that it's time to go through true generational succession. What often happens is, you know, people are brought in and maybe there's an economic share that's given to the new partners. But at the end of the day, you know, within those in investment committee meetings or within decisions for the partnerships, it's really still the founders that are running the show. 
What have you seen work at Viola that really fosters this culture of generational succession where folks like yourself not only were given the economics to be effectively equal with the founders or near equal, but also from the standpoint of decision making, both from an investment standpoint as well as from a firm standpoint? It's it's not easy. I think it's hard. I saw some of the challenges with that when I was at Gemini. For us, the big deal is that the investment committee is in the room and is the partnership itself. And the fact that everybody has a real voice and the fact that people with 20 years experience listen hard to what people with two years experience are saying and actually appreciating that and having that say means something in the room, I think that is so critical. Right. And if you look at our, our younger partners, uh, there are people listen to them. They have an impact. And when they say they are really kind of challenging the senior partnership uh, uh, passion about a deal, we listen to it really, really seriously. And when that happens, I think then there's a real uh, true feeling of, of, uh, of partnership. And I think making that decision to go into that area and listen to one another and having me call my partner, it's been just one year in the firm and saying, hey, I'm, I got this challenge with this company. What are you saying? What are you thinking? Can you see them tomorrow? What, you know, what's your input? And he feels a real partner in everything that we do. That, that was, I think, our secret. In the past, when I've seen partnerships expand and when a number of partners have been added, particularly senior partners, there's a little bit of uh, growing pains. There's a learning curve that in some cases can be quite steep. Were there things that you did as a partnership in those early days intentionally that really helped ensure that full integration was happening? And were there ways that you were measuring those things to, to ensure success? So I, I could compare one critical thing between difference between different funds I was with. I think Viola, one thing that is clear is that if you're a partner, you get a full visibility to the economics of the firm all the way through, right? And you sit in the meeting, you see the budget, you see who's making what, what's the equity, what's, it's all clear on the table, no secrets, no nothing. And if that happens, then you're part of the firm, right? And it doesn't matter right now if you're in a different, you know, you're just a junior partner or senior partner, everything is laid out in front of you. That is a definition of what a true partnership is, right? Samir, if you and I would start a firm today, I'm not going to hold the budget and say, well, Samir, trust me, it's all good, right? We're going to look at it all together, right? That's how partnerships are built. And I think that decision um, is critical. And again, I, I've, I've been in another experience with it was that was not, it was opaque. It was not clear. It was not tran transparent. Um, so that's one um, big decision in my mind. Laying out clear rules of the game of what is the equity, uh, again, what's principal equity, junior partner, senior partner, what happens when you retire, you know, I kind of see that maybe in the future and how the, everything is going to be laid out at certain points and everybody agrees on that. I think that's also a critical point uh, because it, it, everybody understands where they are, right? I know what's the next stage is going to be. I know what are kind of uh, uh, the math in, in, uh, in the game. And the third part, by the way, and, and I know you, you talked, I, I listened to one of the conversations you had uh, uh, with a partner, I don't remember her name, for Forerunner, and she talked about attribution. I think to that the team attribution is critical as well, right? And not sitting and saying, Danny, you know, what the hell's going on with that company, right? But more, it's, it's our company, you know, what's not in celebrating the wins together and celebrating the losses together, and it's one team. And I and again, I... I uh, um, 
know, Shlomo and Avi, my partners, the, the, the founders, they've been amazing at that point. And I think that's true part of our DNA. Well, that's one of the biggest things that we've seen in the change of venture firms over the last 10 to 12 years is moving toward more of a team-oriented model in a culture that really is much more transparent when it comes to economics. So I, I love how you think about you know, the aspect of not only everyone has a voice, but everyone knows exactly what is going on at the highest levels. And it's not something that is privileged just for the top two or three people. Yeah, totally. Totally. And again, look, I, I, it's called a partnership. And, um, you know, my title is general partner. And I, I want, I love focusing on that word partner, right? That means that I'm a part of a, of a partnership, right? And, and, uh, and as, as that moves forward, I think that that's a great benefit and makes our life much more enjoyable. And, and you've now been a VC for, which is, which is hard to believe, but it's been 20 years plus. Through these two experiences, both at Gemini now and Viola, are there things that you've learned over the years that have just evolved your thinking of what makes a good venture capitalist? First of all, what I'm going to say now is obvious, but um, I think it's critical and it was hard for us, I think, to understand it. And at least for me and early on in the career, this is such an outlier business. This is just so much about, uh, you know, one, two big companies moving the needle and all the rest doesn't matter, right? And I think that sometimes drives weird decisions. But when you understand that, when you get that it's all about that grand slam, out of the park, amazing um, home run and 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 all the rest is just nice. Um, it really focuses on how you evaluate the companies, how you work with the companies, where you focus your energy. So, uh, and, and you look at our funds and, and uh, our funds have been, uh, our last four funds have been just amazing. And it's all because we had suddenly these massive, massive outcomes, two, three companies that drove the return, right? And you got to fight for those and not for the ones that are going to make the 1x, 2x. Those really, at the end of the day, don't matter. That's kind of one big thing. I, I want to say one more thing. Um, there's a saying one of my actually ex-partners at Gemini used to say that it's never as good as it seems. It's never as bad as it seems. You know, this is a big motto for me. Last year, we all looked so smart in 2021. Everybody was just, we're so good at this, right? Uh, I remember in 2008, we all looked so dumb. Um, the reality is we're all not that smart, not that dumb. Sometimes you got to understand when you're smart and when just the market is just taking you so much uh, uh, forward. And I think it's true at company level as well, right? When good news comes in, you got to remember, tell the entrepreneur, hey, this is great, but rough times are coming and exactly the opposite also. Yeah, I totally agree with the last comment. It, on the, the first part of your, your point in, in terms of this being a power law game, which is the extreme version of the Pareto principle. How does that impact your decision-making at the early stage when you're looking at these companies? Because on one hand, you are looking at companies that really don't have too much yet in terms of product market fit, revenues, customers. And so you're really looking at peering into the future, both in terms of where the market may evolve, the founders and, and your belief on their ability to execute, as well as their solution in what is likely going to be evolving competitive market. How do you then think about investing in those companies, given that you know that in any portfolio, there's going to be two or three or four companies that really drive the overall fund return? You know, with, when VCs are, are interviewed, 
they, you always say, you know, what are you looking for? And the answer is always the same, right? Great teams and big markets, right? And I hate that answer, right? It's like, oh my God, that is so obvious. The reality is, um, I think we look for that, right? And then, and then, of course, the double click is what makes a great team and what makes um, uh, a big market. I think um, uh, it's obvious to invest in the second company of, you know, a great entrepreneur, it's hard to get access to that. So I'm not saying, but, you know, that's definitely part of the game. I think for first-time entrepreneurs, a lot of it is the focus on the, what's driving them. What's the psychology behind them? Are these people that are really true entrepreneurs that are trying to change the world or not? And sometimes that that question is tricky. Sometimes uh, it's you can see it. And sometimes you got to spend a lot more time with the entrepreneur to really see that they have that drive to build something that is uh, significant. And of course, the big market, uh, sometimes it's obvious to see it and sometimes not. So we focus a lot on these two big questions is we see a big trend here that we think is not everybody is seeing it. And do we see people here that their why, why are they doing it is so clear and so passionate that we know they will kind of drive it all the way to the end. I know it sounds kind of easy or obvious, but that's kind of the reality of, uh, uh, of what we're trying to focus on. Well, I think what it highlights is there's a lot of art in venture versus pure science, although there are things that every firm has to think about. It's improving the sourcing channel, being better at picking companies, and then ultimately winning the companies that you have identified you want to uh, to get into. And just look, maybe looking back at Viola and maybe your entire career, what have you found to be the most important of those three things that really lead to the best returns? I'll, I'll take that answer back to the Israel question. When I started my career, everybody saw everything. So sourcing was not an issue and everybody won, won what they wanted. So winning was not an issue. It was only picking because the Israeli market was not competitive and the overall size of the opportunity was just not big enough. Uh, so I think we all grew up in this market where Picking, picking, that's all we need to do. Let's just be smart about our decision. And only recently we started to understand that, oh my God, you know, we're not seeing all the deals. Sourcing is important. And oh my God, we got to win uh, the deals that we want. So I think the market is shifting from picking uh, to winning. It feels to me, I would say that um, even though it's more competitive, sourcing is, is okay, but that's not our biggest issue. And I would say it's somewhere between that picking and winning. Um, and if I need to, to force it, I would still say that picking is the right deal because still, and maybe that will change, some of the biggest wins were not competitive deals. They were deals that the company over, the, the market overlooked. And somebody had a smart view on them and won them. I can give two examples from our portfolio. Sorry, I'll do that. Iron Source, which IPO'd at you know eleven billion dollars, um, that went down, of course, as the market, but still, I think worth six or seven billion. That was a company. Yeah, I mean, I think we had a, a, a unique access, but the market looked at it a few times, and people didn't see it, and we saw it, and that became a huge, huge outcome. And I think same for Lightrix, another company that I think we won, um, not because, or many looked at it and passed on it. And I, th think, I think we saw something different there. And that's also a, um, a unicorn, very successful company. So I still think picking is, is the big deal. Yeah. And I think a lot of our listeners would probably agree with you and point to the fact that many of the, the top companies of today within the technology world are companies that at the early stages didn't have a lot of interest, didn't have a lot of heat. And it was really a function of 
a VC seeing something that others couldn't. I really appreciate that statement. Maybe what we can end with is you've had so many experiences working with great people, but is there a single piece of advice that's been most impactful to your career? It's an analog world. It's not a binary world. And try to approach everything from that matter. I don't, I'm not, uh, people talk about binary ad, uh, outcomes. It's either zero or a trillion dollar company, or they talk about we're either in it or not. And, and I think I love to approach, and I think early on I was told, look at everything from a more of an analog view. And uh, I think that's very relevant, especially in this uh, digital world that we live in, to remember that people are still analog. Um, and I think that helped me to be more uh, a better business person in the way I could negotiate deals better and how I work with the entrepreneurs and better and how I think about kind of the long-term opportunities. So that would be my, uh, my input on that, on that one. Yeah. Well, well, that's great, Danny. And, uh, I've really enjoyed this conversation. I really appreciate you being on the show and congrats on all the success. I know there's a lot more to be done at Viola, but it's, uh, it's, it's certainly exciting to see what we've seen in the uh, Israeli market. Samir, thanks a lot. This was fantastic. And uh, uh, congrats to you on the successful uh, uh, podcast. And uh, yeah, looking forward to uh, discuss more of this in the future. Thanks so much for listening to another episode of Venture Unlocked. We really hope you enjoyed our conversation with Danny. To learn more about him or Viola Ventures, be sure to go to ventureunlocked.substack.com for detailed notes on the show, as well as my ongoing commentary about the world of venture capital. Venture Unlocked is also available on iTunes or Spotify for download. And while you're there, please leave us a rating and a review as it really helps us out. And don't forget to hit the subscribe button in order to get each and every Venture Unlocked episode as soon as it's released. 